I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, November 12th, 2012. And no, I don't think there's any prophetic significance in the fact that it's November 12th, 2012. Just saying. (laughs) But then again, my prophetic skills are like zilch. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, I understand that it might seem daunting. It might seem like uh, you're uncomfortable with the concept of, you know, testing somebody who claims to be a man or woman of God and... And, you know, I mean, after all, I mean, they've studied the Bible so much longer than you have, right? And 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 they probably know the Bible way better than you do, right? You know, wrong. Listen, 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 listen. Don't let titles get in the way, okay? Uh, somebody who claims to be, you know, a, a, a spokesperson for God, I mean, that's kind of a, that's pretty lofty title. But, you know, listen, <laughs> if they have to kick the title around, not always, but sometimes, that's usually an indicator that, listen, they don't know as much about the Bible as you would think that they should know. In fact, oftentimes the people who are squawking the loudest about, I'm a prophet of God or I'm a, you know, an apostle or whatever. Yeah. By the way, uh, one of the biblical qualifications for an apostle, somebody who was, who basically was there from the beginning of Jesus's teaching ministry uh you know uh, there was more there were more than you know 11 or 12 of those guys um you know there's a whole group of people who really followed Jesus around and and was were very familiar with his teaching and and everything else and so you know you had to uh, be there from the beginning 
of his uh, teaching ministry, and uh, you are also you also needed to be a, an eyewitness to his resurrection. Now, the Apostle Paul is kind of one that is abnormally born. That's what he says, and uh, he he's kind of the exception in the case, you know, when it comes to uh, apostles. But there's there are no apostles today, not a one. Um, so when somebody is kicking around the title of apostle or, you know, having to say that they're a prophetess or a prophet of God, that's generally not a good sign, generally not a good sign. And so, you know, in fact, the more somebody starts throwing around their, their man of God, man of woman, prophet, prophetess, apostles, um, title or moniker, that, that actually requires you to scrutinize their teaching more, not less, more. You just don't take their word for it. And and so here here's the idea, okay? I, I understand that, that uh, you know, y'all have to work for a living, okay? You, you know, you, you get up every day, and if you're a mom, you got you got to make the sandwiches, get your kids dressed, get them on the bus to help with the homework, you know, I'll just... And or you know you know maybe you work in a cubicle you know you you got to get up and do all of the that stuff with your kids too you got to help them out you know you help your spouse out with the you know helping to get the you know, the kids out the door and then you got to quit getting the shower and, and shave if you're a guy and, unless of course you're into the facial hair thing and then you gotta you gotta dress appropriately get out the door quick grab your coffee or you know breakfast sandwich and then and then get out there so that you can rush into slow traffic and then can make the long commute into into the office and, and then you gotta you know then you spend your day working on the projects that your boss wants you to work on and you know and you're spent at the end of the day you come back and and so what by the time you get you know listen you know i i get this you know and so you know real life has a tendency to make it so that um becoming a a world-class bible scholar is generally not going to be the thing that's going to happen for you and so when it comes to challenging people and questioning what they're saying and seeing if what they're saying squares with the Word of God, it seems like a daunting task, but it really isn't. It really isn't in this sense, and that is is that God's Word is knowable. It's understandable, and, um, and we as Christians are lifelong students of God's Word. And so you have time every day to be in the word of God and and you fathers out there that you know your job you you need to step up to the plate and teach your family that's your wife and your kids God's word and it's as simple as cutting out a specific and regular time daily uh and you know if I can make a recommendation a good time to do that would be right at the end of dinner okay so you know as you are sitting down as a family eating your family meal together. And, and and if you're not doing that, I cannot emphasize it strongly. This is a good thing for you to be doing. Um, it gives real good face time uh, with uh, your spouse and your kids. But at the end of dinner, um, you know, you know, you can do this right before everybody, you know, gets up to do their, you know, their, their routine, you know, bust the dishes, uh, clean, you know, wash the dishes, put them in the dishwasher or whatever, you know, however you put away the leftovers. and all that kind of, Before you do all of that, Sit down and open up God's Word and read it, okay? Take a section of Scripture and work through it or work through the entire Bible and do so in a, in a way that you can get through the entire thing. Shoot for, you know, shoot for once a year with, as a family, okay? And so you know, that'll chop it up into, you know, bite-sized pieces of maybe three, four chapters a day. 
this is a good thing, okay? And then what happens is, is that as you have questions regarding a text, um, if you're not sure what it means, you could look online at the, uh, you know, you know look, type in Kretzmann Commentary. And I think there's a website called Kretzmann Project. There's a great online uh, free commentary that's written, you know, it's a popular commentary, so it's written on a lay level. And if you have questions regarding a particular text and you're not sure how to understand it, well, look at the Kretzmann Project. Or you can get something very helpful like the Lutheran Study Bible. Uh, Absolutely the best study notes I've seen in any study Bible that I've ever owned, and I have quite a collection of them. Um, So, and I'm not saying that just because, you know, it says the word Lutheran on it. In fact, I almost wish that Concordia would uh, publish that study Bible uh, without the word Lutheran attached to it, because that's actually kind of deceptive. It's it really is historic Christian orthodoxy is is what's represented in the notes in that thing, and the notes come from church fathers and people throughout the entire history of Christianity, the best thinkers that we have. So a good a good study Bible like that is is, is available to you. And so the idea is is that as your taking the Bible in bite-sized pieces, and you fathers out there are teaching your family, your wife and your kids, this, and catechizing them and teaching them the faith, then what happens is, is that you become more and more familiar with the Bible. And, um, and listen, you're never going to exhaust um, the, what the Bible has to offer as far as teaching you the faith. And uh, Luther, in his uh, commentary on, in, on the um, book of Isaiah, talks about how we as Christians are, you know, really Christianity is all about reading, thinking, meditating on, and, and that's a word that has come to be abused. But the idea is, is that your mind should always be grinding on biblical truths and passages. That requires you to be in it. And so uh, what happens is, is that as you do that, your faith grows. As you do that, your understanding of Scripture grows. And as your understanding of Scripture grows, then what happens is, is that you are less and less and less susceptible to the temptations of the devil uh, when it comes to things like heresy or being led astray by false teaching. In fact, you begin to have a very profound taste for and need for hearing the gospel over and again. In fact, I liken really solid biblical teaching that focuses on Christ. It's like um, it's childlike faith in the sense that uh, when my when my uh, daughters were younger. Um, and I, this is, you know, when they're three and four, you know, they can crawl up in your lap and they want you to read to them, uh, uh, the, your, their favorite book. You know, I remember reading good night moon a thousand times or green eggs and ham a bazillion times. And what happens, you know, is that, you know, a childlike faith, you know, basically says when you get to the end of the story, you look at your dad and you say, again, again, read it again, read it again, read it again. And so the Bible is, is like that. Read it again. Read it again. Tell me the story about Jesus again. Tell me how I can find Jesus in this Old Testament story again. I need to hear it again. Tell me about Jesus again. And so as we, in childlike faith, meditate on and and really grind on and need to hear that story over and over and over, it's wonderful. Then what happens is, is that you are inoculating yourself against false teachers and really, really growing deep in your Christian faith and understanding of God's word. And this protects you and it protects your family as well and makes it possible so that you can listen and hear with discernment. This is not something that is only possible if you engage in the most rigorous of pastoral 
crafts and training. Pastoral craft and training is important so that the minister of God's word rightly handles God's word. But the reality is, is that, think of it this way, okay? When you were growing up, okay, um, did you play Little League Baseball? I did. And, and uh, it, I loved it. I, in fact, my favorite thing did, wasn't the organized baseball. It was the disorganized baseball that we did on my friends' streets. You know, you, you, you know, we didn't have the video games that kids have nowadays. And so literally being outside and playing games was an important part of growing up. And so, I mean... You know, I during the during the summer months, I would spend just it, it seems like endless days playing baseball with my friends on you know on cul-de-sacs or out at a local park or or whatever, and in it was just a ball. It was an absolute blast. But um, but here's the deal. Let me ask you a question: If when you played little league baseball, okay, did you play a different game than anybody plays in the major leagues? No. You didn't, okay? Same rules, same equipment, same goal, okay? It's two teams getting up to bat, and you know, and you know, and the other team trying to you know shut them out, strike them out, or whatever. Get those three outs, and you know, and one team scores more than the other team, unless of course you, you know, you're you're, you're playing that kinder and gentler version of baseball where nobody keeps score. Like, what is that about? Anyway, sorry, but the the idea is is that when you play little league baseball, it's the exact same game that the professionals play. But the professionals, what they've what has happened is, is that they've honed their skills, and their skills are that they have mastered the basics to such a degree that they are capable of playing the game professionally. A pastor is the same way. A pastor is exactly the same thing. A pastor is not one who has a different set of rules that he plays by or a different set of tools that are whatever. A pastor is one who who has mastered the basics of the Christian faith, and I mean this, the basics. There's there's no such thing as really, in the truest sense of the word, as advanced theology. Advanced theology would generally engage in speculation and philosophy, and that kind of stuff, that ain't biblical Christianity. No, no. A pastor's job is to basically master the basics to such a degree that he is capable of serving Christ's sheep professionally in helping to feed them and understand God's word. Okay, there's more to the ministry than that, but that that's a core component of it. Does that make sense? So what happens is is that everybody in the congregation, pardon the metaphor, is playing the same game, but they're playing it at different skill levels. Same rules apply. Same rules apply for a a, a newborn Christian. Uh, somebody who's just been brought to repentance and faith in Christ, apply to the pastor who has mastered the, the basics to a point where he is capable of serving Christ's sheep uh, through the preaching and teaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, and caring for and tending to uh, you know, the, the, the sheep that Christ has put into his care, right? So that's the idea, and so it doesn't matter. It, it, so think that's it. If you're new to if you're new to Christianity, you're learning little league baseball. The same rules apply for everybody. And when somebody's breaking the rules, you should be able to spot it. When somebody is, you know, you know, you think about this in in uh, in baseball. There's certainly illegal uh, pitches. Okay, you're not allowed to play. You know, not, not, a pitcher is not allowed to throw a spitball. You know, this would be a you know putting something on the ball to in order to make the flight go berserk and screwy. You know, you know, 
you know, putting Vaseline on it or something like that. Or you, you understand what I'm saying? That's illegal. So what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is actually very elementary, very basic. It's not advanced theology. This is all about reviewing over and over and over again the basics, the basics of the Christian faith, the basics of discernment, the basics of rightly handling God's word. And rarely, rarely does it ever get super complicated, okay? And the only time it really gets complicated is when a person has come up with a very clever way of disguising their false teaching, their rule-breaking, if you would. And so the idea here is that you, you know, you go about your vocation and and serve your neighbor in the vocation that God has given you. We'll help you review the basics of how the game is played. Again, this is a metaphor. And over time, you are going to you're going to improve in your mastery of God's word and of the basics so that you can be of benefit to your neighbor as well and also not be deceived. So that's the idea behind fighting for the faith. So just just to let you know, this is not advanced theology. This is just an in-depth look at Christianity 101, and nobody ever graduates from Christianity 101. And somebody who thinks that they have, more than likely they've deviated from Christianity. Something to think about. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Quick, I've, we, we got an announcement. We have uh, we we are in a very odd uh, financial position here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. And what I mean by that is that uh, we are in the unique um, we have a unique problem, and he, and here's our problem. Um, that is that um, our audience continues to grow faster than our support for. Uh, the station and for fighting for the faith grows. So what happens is is that um, as a result of you know kind of the the different if you were to look at the two growth curves, um, our audience growth uh, as opposed to our financial growth. What's happening is is that as our audience grows, so do our expenses. This is just a fact of life. Uh, you know this regards bandwidth, uh, server needs, uh, royalties, and other things like that in order to continue to you know. Uh, keep the uh, the station up and running and make it available for people, and um, and one of the things I feel very strongly about, okay, and this is one of those things that you know I, I talk about from time to time, and that is is that other programs put their archives behind a firewall and re- or a paywall, and they require you to uh, join in order for you to have access to those archives. Now I understand the business model there, and it makes perfect sense, okay. However. I would rather struggle financially and make our archives available for people for free, okay, uh, with the understanding that what we're doing here is we're here to serve you. And so um, I, I, this is one of those things where, you know, I know that we could easily uh, turn things around financially by basically saying, okay, after this, after so many days, our, our archives go behind a paywall, and if you want to listen to them, then you, ha- you must sign up for this or, or that or the other thing. That makes perfect financial sense. But see, the thing is, is that I, we're not doing f- fighting for the faith in pirate Christian radio to make financial sense in that sense, because I truly believe, and we so far we you know we've gone four and a half years without uh, being without requiring us to put our archives behind a paywall and rethink uh, how we raise funds here. But the truth of the matter is, is that our expenses continue to grow and our uh, increase and our financial um, giving has not matched that, that growth, uh, especially this year. So 
What we've decided to do is we're we're doing a November bake sale. During the summer, we did a bake sale. Well, during November, we're doing a bake sale, and that is is that to help us, you know, make budget. Um, you know, we have made a a Christmas bulb available. Okay, it's and it has our Pirate Christian Radio logo on it. There's only a hundred of them available as of today, and then you know once they're gone, they're gone. And and what we've also what we also have is we have a little bit of stock left from our summer bake sale. Uh, the um, the bracelets that my mother in law made and the T-shirts uh, that were donated. We still have white T-shirts available. So. Um, if you, if it, could you support us, uh, financially, please do so. Um, and you know, by either joining our crew or visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and, uh, purchase, purchase a, uh, a, a pirate Christian radio Christmas bulb. The topper, by the way, it's a red, it's a red bulb. Uh, with a silver topper, and it's got a beaded topper on top of it that my mother-in-law made. She spent time uh, working uh, through the fall months. Basically, do, she's a beater, B-E-A-D-E-R. She, not beater like she beats people, but B-E-A-D-E-R. Uh, she's a beater, and she beaded the tops that are on the bulbs. Uh, and, you know, she's always trying to find ways to help us, you know, get through. So, um, so I'm going to put a PDF in the, uh, podcast stream on iTunes that you can download to where you can see it. But again, if you would support us, uh, you know, November bake sale to help us, you know, kind of catch up financially, we're still, you know, so you can do so piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. That would be, that would be fantastic. And, um, and then real quick, I have a correction. Um, last week we did a sermon review from Daystar Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And I had I was under the impression that it was preached by the head pastor Johnny Enlow. Well, it turns out that upon further review, uh we received an email from somebody correcting us that uh, that particular sermon actually wasn't preached by Johnny Enlow. The name of the sermon the uh, Razor's Edge, it was uh preached or delivered by uh, a guy by the name of Chris Tigreen. Chris Tigreen. So just a quick correction. Correction. That was not Johnny Enlow. That was uh, somebody else from the congregation speaking, named Chris Tigreen. So just a quick correction for the record for out there. And let's talk about what we're going to do on the rest of the program today, though. Um, we have an emergency William Tapley update. Yes, yeah, I didn't know they William Tapley needed to get emergency messages out. But over the weekend, on Sunday, yesterday, uh, William Tapley sent out an emergency update to his uh, YouTube account. We're going to play that for you real quick. Um, I've got a Paula White update of um, uh, Ken Silva over at Apprising Ministries has um, posted a segment from the latest fleecing by Paula White. And you need to hear this, um, uh, what she's up to. And if you know people who are listening to Paula White and being influenced by her, quote, ministry, you need to you need to lovingly confront them and challenge them regarding uh, what she's doing. She's really she's one of these money grubbing televangelists who's you know bending, twisting God's word in order to make merchandise of the flock of Christ. And so you know we're going to play for you the latest there. I've got a, a quick Tulian Tavidian um, uh, update. He's uh, written a recent uh, op-ed piece at the Christian Post entitled. Moralism versus Jesus-centered preaching. A f- fantastic article worth passing along, and it'll kind of frame what we're going to do for our sermon review today. And for our sermon review, we're going to be going to Westbridge Church, uh, Westbridge Community Church, St. Michael, Minnesota, and we're going to be listening to what I would consider a 
moralism light sermon. See, one of the things we I think will help us all, and that's to that's this is that if we look at the categories of moralism versus Jesus centered preaching, okay keep these categories in the forefront of our mind as we listen to a lot of the seeker-driven sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith, then what you'll see is is that the seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches have come up with a new version of moralism, okay? A brand new version of it, and it's constantly preaching law, 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 and the thing you have to do rather than preaching Christ. So we're going to be listening to a sermon called How Not to Waste Your Life uh, by uh, Jeremiah Curran over at Westbridge Community Church in St. Michael, Minnesota, and I want you to have the moralism versus Jesus-centered preaching categories in your mind as you're listening to the sermon. Because there's a lot of different ways in which we could critique this particular sermon. But uh, I, I want to kind of drill down into, you know, a little farther into the basic presuppositions behind the sermon and the theology behind it in order to uh, help help you sort all that out. So with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. And before we go go to our break, we have a quick uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, emergency update. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> the end of the world as we know it. That's our William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times update music. And over the weekend, um, William Tapley, well, he did something he doesn't normally do, and that is, is that he posted an emergency video, if you would. And he did it on Sunday. He normally doesn't update on Sunday. He's a uh, a very staunch Roman Catholic. So, um, yeah, it's best if I play the video for you so that you can you know, get the emergency update here. Apparently it has something to do with Barack Obama being in danger because Alabama lost on Saturday? Yeah, here's uh, William Tapley to explain. I'm going to skip my usual beginning and ending to this video because this will be very short. In fact, I don't usually do videos on Sunday. Yesterday, I believe we received a very important prophecy from Almighty God that Barack Obama's life may be in danger. And today, I'm urging prayers for our president. Yesterday, as you know, the number one college football team, Alabama, was defeated by Texas A&M in a tremendous upset. And if you check out the Internet... Everyone is saying, down goes Obama. Uh, do a Google search and you will see what I mean. All right, hang on. All right, did a Google search. And, well, I mean, the first thing that comes up is the ESPN website. Uh, the headline reads, down goes Bama. Now, see, here's the deal. William Tapley is one of these guys that I don't think pays attention 
to too much details when it comes to words. The reason I say that is it's Bama, not Bama. Bama, as in Alabama. You know, like, you know, how's that uh, chef go? Bam! It's it's Bama. It's not Bama. Down goes Bama. <laughs> Just, but see, the other thing is, is that I'm getting emails from across the world from people who actually know Korean that um, William Tapley, well, more proof that he's a false prophet, completely biffed on his translation of Opnon Gagnam style. <laughs> Apparently, Gagnam is like... Uh, uh, like a pretty ritzy neighborhood in Korea, and um, and it does not mean gangland. It's like south of the river or something like that. But I mean, he completely biffed his uh, um, Antichrist arrives Gangnam style uh, analysis by completely butchering the Korean language. And so now he's doing it to the English language. It's well, I should say American because it's Bama. It's not Bama. You know, and it matters. You know, the emphasis is on a different syllable here. But apparently God is speaking to us. You know, see, he's got, he's got prophetic insight. God is sending us a direct message regarding the, apparently the, the imminent danger that Barack Obama is in <laughs> because Alabama lost over the weekend. I believe what God is telling us is down goes Obama. No, he's not. And that means we need prayers for our president? We ought to be praying for our president, yes, because he holds the highest office in our land. We do pray for presidents, including Obama. I'm not saying that this is necessarily an assassination attempt or maybe even an accident or health issues or something else that may afflict our president. It may be something political like an impeachment, but in any case, I believe we need prayers for Mr. Obama and for our country now more than ever, we need to ask God to bless America. Mm-hmm. Now, see, here's the deal. What would he be saying if Bama won the national title? What would be the prophetic insight of that? Anyway, so there you go. An emergency, a rarely seen uh, Sunday video posting by William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and co-prophet of the End Times, which basically kind of begs the question, where is where are his family members? Where are his family members? Because so, <laughs> that he think to, that he's taken this stuff seriously, and that he really thinks that this is a message from God, really shows that he there's uh, more going on here than meets the eye or the ear because we're doing a radio. All right. We are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Actually, click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Boys Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny, and the geek in your life will really enjoy them. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. Warning, anybody claiming to find prophetic messages in popular music and sporting events isn't a prophet. Just saying. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world and to keep our archives available for free. So that, that's how you, what you do is you partner with us. By partnering with us, we're able to do all of that. And uh, if you don't already partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And if you'd like to participate in our November bake sale, just go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and pick up your limited edition pirate christian radio christmas bulb with a beaded topper uh, handmade by my mother-in-law so pirate christian radio.com forward slash bake sale all right moving along time for a paula white update It's really expensive keeping up your appearances as a televangelist. I mean, and then, you know, you've got all those private jet fees and, you know, you got to keep your hair, you know, with the latest style and you got to have a personal trainer and, you know, things like that. You know, you got to work hard for your money. That's our Paula White update music, uh, Donna Summers. She works hard for the money. All right, so this update, uh, the uh, information comes to us via Apprising Ministries. You can find this at apprising.org. That's the uh, website of Ken Silva. And uh, he's kind of like the middle linebacker of uh, discernment ministers out there. And uh, he has a, a, a new post called T.D. Jakes's Spiritual Daughter, Paula White's Latest Lie. To fleece her flock. Paula White's uh, latest, you know, that would be uh, T.D. Jakes's spiritual daughter, her latest lie to fleece her flock. And uh, what he's pointing us to is the the recent fundraising uh, email letter that has gone out from Paula White. And what I think is interesting here is that uh, Ken takes the time to kind of connect a few dots for us. Number one, who's responsible for Pastrix Paula White coming on the scene? Answer, well, she was mainstreamed by T.D. Jakes, uh, who she claims is her spiritual father, okay? And uh, and how was T.D. Jakes really mainstreamed into the heart of American evangelicalism? Well, that was, uh, <laughs> that was through the efforts of the gambling man known as uh, uh, <clears throat> James McDonald. 
uh, world-class high-stakes poker player. But um, so, yeah, he, he did that elephant room too. And so uh, anyway, if what we're going to do here is, is, listen, if you know anybody who follows the ministry of Paula White and thinks that what they're getting is the word of God, you need to have a very firm and loving and concerned conversation with them. And the, here's the reason why. Paula White is a money-grubbing tele-evangelist, and she tells a story. And she's one of these ones out there who never misses the opportunity to take a biblical passage that mentions the word seed in it and somehow make it about you needing to give money to her ministry or others. Now, she's, you know, this is one of the ways she raises money for her own ministry. She's raised money for T.D. Jakes' ministry, doing the same thing. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, we're going to go into the archives here at the Apprising Ministry uh, website and listen to Paula White giving a seed ministry pitch. I think this was at T.D. Jakes's. Um, uh, you know, uh, church, uh, the Potter's House, but you, you need to hear it because there's there's a kind of a a template that they all follow. So let me read to you from the latest fundraising email from Paula White's ministry. Okay, um, the name of it is "We Come Before the Lord with an Attitude of Gratitude." Yeah, I gotta love how those two words rhyme, but. Here's what Paula White says. She says, We honor God for all that he does in our lives, and we honor him for all that we are expecting him to do. Psalm 69 verse 30 says, uh, or encourages us to have an attitude of gratitude. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. So this month we're focusing on an attitude of gratitude. We are showing God the gratitude that he deserves for the grace he shows us, the undeserving grace he pours out on on his people. And in turn, we are also honoring him for the works that he will do in, in time as well. He is so worthy of this. He is our God. So far, it sounds pretty pious, right? Uh, it, it, he is our God in whom we trust. We must thank him for all that he has done in doing this. And uh, we we do so by faith. And so we thank you, Lord. So far, so good, I think. But here's what happens. Watch this. We are committed to putting before him and offering this season a gratitude seed. And we're going to do this by faith. This is an extremely important and powerful seed for you, especially at this time in your life. This seed will do two things for you. This seed will get God's attention. Remember, God sits high and looks low. He is looking for faith on the earth. This seed will require strong faith. So, see, you got to sow a seed. you got to give money to Paula White's ministry. And when you do that, that's going to get God's attention. Number two, this seed will be seen as as a gratitude offering. So she, apparently she's worked this all out with God. And gratitude always produces favor, and favor will cause you to receive in a moment more than some do in a lifetime. See the manipulation going on there? Yeah, see, that's what happens is, is that the, the worldview, the theology of the televangelist is this. God's up there in heaven, and he's very busy. You know, he's he, he's got a planet to run. I mean, in, in the universe to manage. And, you know, and plus, you know, we don't even understand all of the day-to-day complexities of, you know, reigning, you know, the heavenly kingdom and, you know, and the the the, the, the angels and the, the armies of heaven and things like that. And plus then you got all the different attacks of the devil. And, man, God's a busy guy. I mean, so you can't expect to get his attention just by any old means. But see, the thing is, is that God has his ear attuned. He, he's got he's got special sensory perception in the sense that he can hear 
when you're writing a check. See, in the old days, you know, money was coin. You know, you, you had coinage. And so you remember, you know, Tetzel's uh, little slogan, when a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. See, God, God used to be especially attuned to the sound of coins hitting a coffer. See, but nowadays, since we, you know, we don't you have a lot of coins except for like the spare change jingling around in our pockets, God has had to actually up his hearing. And so now he, he you know, when when he hears you writing a check to Paula White's ministry, uh, he, he goes from being busy to all of a sudden, whoa, 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 say, wait, 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 wait. Oh, you've got my attention now. You're writing a you're writing a check to Paula White's ministry. Oh, I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. And see, then what happens is, is that depending on how many zeros are after the, the, the first number, you know, wherever the decimal place falls, you know, how many commas are in it. Well, then what happens is, is that the, the bigger the check, the more of God's favor you earn by writing this check. By the way, this is a form of moralism. And basically, you pay for and earn God's favor by sending money to Paula White. That's what's going on here. So let's kind of go back in the archives here a little bit. This is uh, this is from the archives over at apprising.org, and this is Paula White, and um, you know, she's preaching for T.D. Jakes at the Potter's House. And listen to how the, how the, the appeal goes, okay? And notice how she uses the word seed. Every time the word seed comes up with a televangelist, that, that means you write them a check. And watch how many times she claims to have a direct revelation from God. And listen to the numbers she kicks around and how you really are sowing a seed. You're, you're giving an amount of money with the idea that it's going to reap a financial harvest. So, I mean, this is the equivalent of believing in, oh, well, a money tree. You know, it won't grow in your backyard, but see, if you want to get money from God, you got you want God to give you money, well, you know what you got to do. Send a check to the, you know, to T.D. Jakes or to Paula White. Listen in. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let me tell you something in conclusion. Two things I never did. I never stopped giving, and I never got out of line. You want to be successful like Paula White. Well, never stop giving. Always give money, 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 money. Who does she give it to? Her hairdresser? The doctor who did her plastic surgery? I mean, who did she give her? You know, And, and she never gets out of line. Somebody who says this doesn't know what they're talking about because, notice, this is all law. This is a form of moralism. We'll talk about this in a little bit in, in a little bit here. But this is a form of moralism. You give to get from God. By being good, you earn something from God. Never stopped giving and I never got out of line. When I was here for woman hour loose, I did not expect to receive an offering. The Lord gave me a word, Psalm 126. The Lord... So the Lord gave you a word, Psalm 126. Sounds so pious, right? I mean, she just quotes Psalm 126. Oh, the Lord gave that to you, right? Okay, everyone was to give $106 that when you sow... In- so you see, God gave her a word, Psalm 126. So when you sow a gift of $126, what's going to happen? You're going to reap with joy. Oh, you're going to reap with joy. See, you give money to get. And who do you give it to? The televangelist. This is a spiritual Ponzi scheme. And the Bible doesn't teach this. Those that bear precious seed, that you bring precious seed, because when you're weeping... When you're in the recovery process, seed is sacrificial. 
Okay. Seed sacrificial. And he said, you'll come back and you'll bring back. I want you to hear this. You're going to bring back. And when you come back, you'll bear sheaves. You'll bear your harvest. The Lord spoke to me, and I say this humbly before the Lord, because at one time to give the... Notice, okay, now here's the deal. When I play a William Tapley update, you all know that William Tapley is a taco short of a combo plate. There's few, if any, that put any stock in William Tapley's actually hearing God's voice. Okay? The one thing that William Tapley doesn't have going for him is the slick story skills and polish that the televangelists have. But it's the same template. The Lord told me, I've got a special insight from God. I have the inside track with him. God and I are so close, he talks directly to me. And you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to send in money. So it's, it's not, no, understand. It's, it, this is really for your benefit. This is all humble. And th- I'm just trying to help you. You see, when you send in money to Paula White, you're not really supporting Paula White. What you're doing is you're planting a seed in the ground that will rise up someday and bear a harvest and reap a hundredfold. So you give her, you give her one hundred and twenty-six dollars. You give TD Jakes one hundred and twenty-six dollars, and you know what's going to happen? God, it's going to get God's attention, and God, you're going to earn God's favor with that check, and He's going to give. He's, it's it, you're going to get back a hundredfold from that. This is not what the Bible teaches, by the way. God's gifts are free. Salvation is free. God's blessings are free. And we give because we're free in Christ now to give, and we support the preaching of the gospel. But see, that's the thing you don't hear from a Paula Wyatt or a T.D. Jakes is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. No, their God is up in heaven waiting for you to earn his favor and blessings by sending them a check. kind of seed wasn't... A lot, but today it is an extreme sacrifice. You know, used to there'd be millions of dollars in the bank. Now, First Lady, I used to say there'd be $16 million. Now you look to see if there's $16. First Lady is uh, T.D. Jakes's wife. For real. <laughs> for real. You're like, okay, Lord. <laughs> All right. For real, for real. I have a, I have a church. And the Lord said, Paula, you don't give 126. I want you to give 12,600. I said, that's so sacrificial. Uh, so God told her to give $12,600 to T.D. Jakes' ministry. Huh. So my, here's my question. Since the Bible forbids women uh, to be pastors, they're, uh, they're actually excluded from the pastoral office. And she says she's a pastor and she has her uh, church. Why should I believe that God's actually speaking to her? You see, that's proof positive, objective, biblical proof that she ain't hearing from God. I don't know who she's hearing from. It could be herself. It could be the devil. But it ain't God. We we can rule that out definitively because there ain't no such thing as a female pastor. I obeyed God. Little did I know when I activated that seed and put it in the hands of First Lady and Bishop that within just months, really within days, God would open up. He would open up and give the favor of the Lord that would bring forth a harvest that was absolutely impossible in the natural. Okay, so she gave $12,600 to T.D. Jakes' ministry, and within a few months, she reaped a harvest. But a situation that turned everything around for my life for ministry, that God would position me strong going into 2011. I'm telling you right now, the anointing you sow into is the anointing you reap of. I want you to hear me. 
God speak in a minute. I want you to give a $126 offering. Somebody might be $1,260. Somebody might be $12,600. But this seed is the sealant. The seed says, God, I stand that I'm positioning myself in a place of faith. I'm positioning myself for 2011 strong. By the way, there's no faith. This is writing a check. You're purchasing a blessing from God. That's not faith. That's works. Big difference. I want you to be seated for just one minute. Make your checks payable to the Potter House and every single person get it. When you get it, I want you to pass it all the way down to the right. Is that okay? To the So you have to give to the Potter's House so that you can position yourself to earn, well, buy, buy purchase God's blessings and favor. This is utter blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. If you know anybody that listens to T.D. Jakes, Paula White, or any of these people, you need to sit down and have a conversation with them. Because not only are they being taught false doctrine, that will lead them to hell. They're not being taught the biblical gospel. They're being taken advantage of and literally having their money stolen from them in the name of God and being told that God is up in heaven waiting to bless them, but they have to step out in faith and write a big check before they can position themselves to earn God's favor and blessings. This is not the God of the Bible. And this is not Christianity. Christianity teaches that God's gifts are free. They're a gift. He get, And faith is to trust in the goodness and mercy of God, who is our Heavenly Father who knows all of our needs. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus said, and his righteousness. That's the righteousness of God given to us by faith. And all of these things that we need will be given to us. Nowhere does Jesus say, and then write the check, plant the seed, and then you'll earn God's favor and blessing. This is blasphemy of the highest degree. And this is the standard template. And if you know anybody who's falling for this, you need to reach out to them and open their eyes to the truth. Read Galatians. Read the book of Galatians where, you know, the salvation by grace alone through faith alone and God's blessings, continued blessings by, by believing what God has said in his word by faith. Not by works. Writing a check, that's a work. That's not faith. That's a work. You know, so you got you need to have that conversation with them. Might be uncomfortable, but sit down and say, listen, I'm very concerned that you're falling for somebody who claims to be a prophetess, who claims to be a pastrix, and the Bible says there's no such thing as a pastrix. And they're teaching that you can buy God's favor. You can't. God's favor is given to us gratuitously as a free gift by Christ's shed blood on the cross and faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. These folks are charlatans and blasphemers, and they will have to give an accounting for every penny they stole from people in the name of God. And, you know, reach out, help save your people from them. All right. Next story here from the Christian Post. Tullian Tavigian has an op-ed piece entitled, Moralism versus Jesus-centered preaching. Moralism versus Jesus-centered preaching. Tulian writes, he says, um, A number of years ago, Kim and I were having dinner with Tim and Kathy Keller, and Kathy said, Most preaching these days is M-O-T-S preaching. Kim said, What's M-O-T-S preaching? Well, Tim answered, Moral of the story preaching. To read and preach the Bible as if it were fundamentally about us and what we should do is to miss the point 
of the Bible entirely. Tim explains the difference between a moralistic reading of the Bible and a Jesus-centered reading of the Bible is this. We have said that you must preach the gospel every week to edify and grow Christians and convert non-Christians. But if that is the case, you cannot simply instruct in biblical principles. You have to get to Jesus every week. For example, look at the story of David and Goliath. What is the meaning of that narrative quote for us? Without reference to Christ, the story may be and usually is preached as if the bigger they come, the harder they fall. If you go into your battles with faith in the Lord, uh, you, you may not be real big and powerful in yourself, but with God on your side, you can overcome giants. But as soon as we ask, how is David foreshadowing the work of his greater son, Jesus, we begin to see the same features of the story in a different light. The story is telling us that the Israelites cannot go up against Goliath. They can't do it. They need a substitute. When David goes in on their behalf, he is not a full-grown man, but a vulnerable and weak figure, a mere boy. He goes virtually as a sacrificial lamb, but God uses his apparent weakness as the means to destroy the giant, and David becomes Israel's champion, redeemer, so that his victory will be imputed to them. They all get the fruit of having fought the battle themselves. This is a fundamentally different meaning than the one that arises from the non-Christocentric reading of, of the Bible. There is, in the end, only two ways to read the Bible. It is basically about me, or it is basically about Jesus. In other words, it is basically about what I must do, or basically about what he has done. If I read David and Goliath as basically giving me an example, then the story is really about me. It, I must summon up all the faith and courage to fight the giants in my life. But if I read David and Goliath as basically showing me salvation through Jesus, then the story is really about him. Until I see that Jesus fought the real giants, sin, the law, death, the devil for me, I will never have the courage to be able to fight ordinary giants in life, suffering, disappointment, failure, criticism, and hardship. For example, how can I ever fight the giant of failure unless I have a deep security that God will not abandon me? If I see David as my example, the story will never help me fight the failure giant. But if I see David slash Jesus as my substitute, whose victory is imputed to me, then I can stand before the failure giant. As another example, how can I ever fight a giant of persecution or criticism? Unless I can see him forgiving me on the cross, I won't be able to forgive others. Unless I see him as forgiving me for, fail, for falling asleep on him, I won't be able to stay awake for him. In the Old Testament, we are continually told that our good works are not enough, that God has made a provision. This provision is pointed to at every place in the Old Testament. We see it in the clothes God makes Adam and Eve in Genesis, to the promises made to Abraham and the patriarchs, to the tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system, to the innumerable references to a Messiah, a suffering servant, and so on. Therefore, to say that the Bible is about Christ is to say that the main theme of the Bible is salvation is of the Lord. See Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. Great op-ed piece, great op-ed piece, and that's exactly right. 
when you read the Bible as basically principles that I need to apply, that when I go into the Old Testament, these are stories about people who did it first, and I just need to follow their example, you make the Bible about you. And the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Christ. The Bible is about what he has done for you. See, no amount of good works are going to be able to earn your salvation. No amount of writing checks or good works are going to be able to earn God's favor. You can't you cannot possibly begin to even remotely be able to make payments on the principal or even the interest of you know of the debt that you've racked up because of your sinful rebellion against God. You are bankrupt spiritually. Period. Okay? You cannot possibly pay back the debt that you that you owe God and no amount of good works are going to be able to make up for what you've done. You need a substitute and that's the message of the scripture over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New. We're pointed to our substitute, Jesus Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. As the psalmist said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Christianity is about Christ. Moralism can't save you, by the way. It actually ultimately damns you. And as long as you continue to read yourself into these stories and think it's all about you, you're missing Christ. And as a result of missing Christ, you're still dead in trespasses and sins and literally still soiled with the filth of your own sin rather than washed in the blood of the Lamb and clothed in his righteous robes, which are given as a gift, not as something that you earn by writing a check or doing good works and earn by a wage. It's all gift, all gift, and it's done for you by your merciful, merciful, kind, gracious, and forgiving Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash 
sheep. And you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the Cheapo Air's already low prices. Write down the promo code, then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website. Very easy to use, very inexpensive. You save an additional $15. And by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. So again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Keep those categories of moralism versus Christ-centered preaching in the front of your head as you're listening to the sermon. Now, I'll point out the ripped-out-of-context Bible verses here that seem to take an exacto knife to Jesus, make sure he doesn't really show up. Yeah, that's a bad sign, folks. That's a really bad sign, but let's do this right. good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Westbridge Community Church, St. Michael, Minnesota. Jeremiah Curran presiding. The name of the sermon is How to Not Waste Your Life. How to Not Waste Your Life. I think this should be renamed um, How to Waste a Sunday Morning. Listen, if, you're, if your pastor's not going to actually open up the biblical text and rightly handle God's word and is not going to point you to Christ but just engage in some kind of purpose-driven, find-your-destiny type of moralism, and yeah, that's what I'm calling it, uh, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of a Sunday morning. I would rather sleep in and personally watch football or something. But anyway... So, the thing you need to keep in the mind, keep in the front of your mind, moralism, all these things you've got to do to make the text about you, or Christ-centered preaching. I guarantee you this is far from Christ-centered preaching. I'm not sure if Jesus actually makes an appearance in the sermon, but I do know that each and every appearance of the Word of God seems to, well, be out of context and be, for the most part, Jesus-less. See if you hear anything about what Jesus has done for you. So let's um, go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Jeremiah Curran. Curran uh, I'm probably messing up his name. And uh, his uh, <clears throat> from his sermon series entitled Work Sucks, Then You Die, this is called How to Not Waste Your Life. Here we go. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge. Thanks for joining us. Hey, grab your program if you would, and inside you're going to find a lot of stuff, more stuff than we've ever crammed into a program before. And I want to take a second and go through some of it. And um, you'll notice uh, the first thing here, this thing that says 30 days of prayer. 
Uh, what is that all about? Well, we kind of have been talking about over the last couple of weeks uh, this idea of room for everyone and that we're going to be starting in the next, uh, really kicking off this series, Room for Everyone, next Sunday. And the whole idea is that we're looking to the future. We're looking to um, eventually, in the next couple of years, move into a permanent facility as a church. So we rent the school here on the weekends, but we know that as we continue to grow, we need to create more space so that we can invite more people. And um, so... As we sort of kick off that series, what we're asking everyone to do is take 30 days and pray. And we wanted to give you a guide of some things that you could pray for. So we just uh, gave this to you this morning as some information. You can take that home with you and, uh, and begin to pray. We also have these really slick bracelets. They say room for everyone. And uh, you can grab uh, one of those, grab a couple of those, whatever. And uh, just a quick reminder uh, to pray for this campaign, Room for Everyone, during the next 30 days. Uh, The other thing about that, maybe you're saying, well, Room for Everyone, what is that all about? I need more details about this. Uh, Perfect. I'm glad you asked. It says uh, right here, we've got what we've been calling pie meetings. And so over the last 10 days, we've had 13 pie meetings, 14, 13 pie meetings, and uh, we have 14 more. There's 14 more time options over the next 10 days. So plenty of opportunity. We wanted to make sure everybody had an opening, a chance to be able to go to one of these pie meetings and find out. And really the pie meeting just stands for Pastors Information Exchange. We wanted to give you all the information so that we could sit down face to face and let you answer, uh, let you ask whatever questions you had about this uh, this initiative room for everyone now uh, the the other good part about these is that there's actually going to be pie there and that is important for you to know because uh, I think personally that's part of the draw uh, anyways I've had 13 pieces of pie in 10 days and uh, you should come and join us um, so there's a couple available this evening, one at four o'clock, one at five o'clock. Those are both at my house. And, uh, as soon as you sign up, we'll email you directions. Uh, if you ever have questions uh, or the directions don't get to you or whatever, uh, you can send an email to pi at westbridgechurch.com. And, uh, of course, cleverly named email address there. So on the back is, uh, some available growth groups. If you still haven't signed up for a growth group, but you'd like to, even though the groups have only met for one week, so it's not like you're missing a whole ton. You can still jump in and, uh, and be a part of those groups. These are available ones. You can sign up for that as well. So I want to encourage you. We're asking everybody, everybody to at least go to one pie meeting. Just one. You don't have to go to all 14, just one meeting and at least um, find out what this room for everyone thing is all about and, uh, and then make your kind of your decision from there. But if we can get everyone to go to just one, I'm, I'm begging you to make some time over the next week and a half to at least go to one of these time slots. And uh, they'll, they'll all either be at my house or Andrew, one of our other pastors, at his house. And um, again, 14 more options in the next 10 days. So please sign up for that. All right, lastly, um, I think that's everything. Grab your notes, if you would. Uh, for those of you that like to follow along and take notes, we've provided that for you. As well as included in there is a growth group guide. And that's just basically, we take those with us to growth groups, those of you that are involved in growth groups. And you know we encourage everybody to do that. Uh, but it's a way for you to take what we're learning on Sunday and apply it to your life, specifically with a group of people and talk about, okay, how does this apply to me and my situation? So uh, we're going to jump right into it today. We've been in this series called Work Sucks and Then You Die, which has been a lot of fun. We've talked about how to find happiness at work, uh, and we've talked about how to deal with toxic and difficult coworkers. Listen to this litany of things that they've been talking about over the past few weeks of their Work Sucks, Then You Die sermon series. Does this sound like... Biblical Christian sanctification. I mean, just listen to the list. 
workers last week how to balance work and family. And uh, it was really encouraging to see last week the, the response that we got from people saying, uh, man, there were so many practical things that we took. And, and so people were saying things like, uh, I'm, I'm coming up with a plan to, uh, to create more time for family, or I've changed my default setting. Which, by the way, is not a bad thing. The issue is, is how is this Christian sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit? Setting to yes, or uh, just some really practical things that I, I hope you were able to take out of last week. And uh, we saw lots of great feedback from that. This week, we're wrapping up this series, and we're talking about uh, how to not waste your life, right? Because we all need that. So uh, my son is at an age right now where he is way into superheroes. And to be honest with you, that's something that never goes away. I, too, am into superheroes, uh, have been for a long time. I think the reason superhero movies are so popular is because I think that they connect with something in all of us deep down, uh, kind of this, this desire to be great, this desire to do something significant, uh, to make a difference in the world, to make our lives count for something. I think about over the last few years even, the, the remaking in modern ways of some of the old uh, uh, superhero tales. You have a remake of Superman and Spider-Man and uh, uh, Batman. You have uh, the Fantastic Four, the Green Lantern, the Avengers, which is basically just Iron Man 3, uh, and then X-Men and all of these different like heroes and comic books and superheroes and all these things. And in almost every superhero story... There's something that needs to be addressed or accomplished that these heroes are uniquely qualified to do. As I was thinking about that this week, it reminded me of another childhood hero of mine, Popeye. Popeye the what? That's right. Popeye the Sailor Man, right? And uh, <laughs> Strange place to start a sermon. Popeye the Sailor Man, okay. I was thinking about that. I loved Popeye when I was a kid, but... I was thinking about him this week, and I thought, he's really a different kind of hero because of, he's just very weird looking. And when you think about him, right, it's like uh, he's got a bum eye. He's got uh, male pattern baldness. He's got an insatiable nicotine addiction. And uh, you can't understand a thing the guy says during the whole show. And to top it all off, he has freakishly huge forearms. Have you ever seen this? This guy is like deformed, his forearms. They're so uh, out of balance, but we all loved him. We all loved Popeye the Sailor Man, and there was also a woman who loved him as well. Olive oil. Wow. Was she a looker? <laughs> right? I mean, but she, you know, whatever makes your boat float, I guess, and she did it for Popeye. And, and uh, so Popeye, uh, he loved her, and whenever she was in trouble or the situation seemed grim, uh, you would see this transformation in Popeye, right? First you, first you had this mild-mannered guy dressed in a sailor suit. And then all of a sudden something would happen and uh, Pluto, would be, uh, Pluto would be messing with, um, uh, with olive oil and uh, harassing her. And, and she, the situation looked dire and grim. And all of a sudden there would be this, this radical transformation. Popeye would start to get frustrated and his, his eyes would get big and his, his uh, blood would start to boil. And you could see him reach this point of frustration to the point where he verbally confesses, right? What does he say? That's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. And in his frustration, the next thing he does is he reaches down in his sailor pants Pulls out a can of spinach with, I don't know why his sailor pants were uniquely equipped with unlimited amounts of spinach, but 
He would pull out a can of spinach and, and crush the can, and the spinach would pop into his mouth, and all of a sudden, his hands would get big, boom, his muscles would uh, all grow, and he would like immediately jump into action, right? And then everything is set right, and he would put the hurt on the bad guy, and the whole situation would be taken care of. And every uh, episode would end with the theme song. They would all finish the theme song, right? I'm strong to the finish because I eat my spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. (laughs) I love it. That's what I was talking about. That's what I'm waiting for right there. I knew we had a cultured audience at this church. This is amazing. I think that all of us at some point in our life reach a moment where we look at our life and we say to ourselves, that's all it can stands and I can't stands no more. I think all of us reach a point of discontentment, of dissatisfaction, and, and, and oftentimes it's a good thing. It's, a, it's sort of a holy discontent. It can, be a, it can almost be a gift from God where we reach this point in our lives where we say, man, this is all I can stands and I can't stands no more. And um, we go through seasons where we wonder if what we're doing with our life is really making a difference. If there's any significance, if there's any meaning, if there's any fulfillment to what we're doing with our life. For many of you, it was that sense of discontentment. It was that sense of dissatisfaction with life that was key to drawing you to God or drawing you back to God. Because there was something deep down inside of you that said, what about sorrow and contrition for your sins? Discontentment with life? I'm not satisfied with life, so... you There has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than simply uh, fighting traffic and living for the weekend and trying to you know, save for retirement and hoping someone shows up to my funeral. There has to be something deeper. And somewhere inside of us, we all experience that moment where there's this discontentment, this uh, dissatisfaction with life that says there has to be something more. And for many of us, it's what drew you to want to explore faith, to begin to ask questions about God and about eternity. And you found yourself uh, here today. And you're wondering, you know, is the God thing real? Is uh, What is the church really all about? Great questions. Uh, is the God thing real? Don't you think your job as pastor is to preach Christ because he's God in human flesh? Those people looking to find out if the God thing is real really need to hear about Jesus and what he's done. Uh, is there more to life? What is the purpose of everything? Are we just spinning around on this ball in the middle of space? Or is there more to all of this? And there's this deep down a dissatisfaction and a discontentment with just kind of going through the motions. And so we ask ourselves that question. As a matter of fact, the Bible states very clearly that you were made for more. That you and I were made for more than just to simply exist. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2. Okay, now listen listen to what he's doing here. Okay, the Bible says you were made to do more than simply exist. If I were to go into this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to quote verse 10, and I'm not sure where he's quoting it from. I don't know what the paraphrase is that he's using. But is that what this text really says, that it's all about, you know, hey, there's there's more to life than, you know, whatever? Is that what this passage is really saying? We'll take a look at our three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation in order to discover that. But let's let him do his work first. Hang on. God has made us what we are. And in our union with Christ Jesus, he has created us for a life of good deeds, which he has already prepared for us to do. 
God has created you and he has a purpose in mind for your life. You are not an accident, regardless of what your parents told you. Now, it's true that you're not an accident. But is that really the gist of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Now, this will, this will be our launching off point here, by the way. There's three, there's three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis, and they are context, context, and context. You can generally identify a false teacher, somebody who's twisting God's word, when you take the verse that they've given you and put it back in its context. So we're going to do that here in just a second. And I want you to keep the the, the two categories, moralism versus Jesus-centered preaching, in you know kind of at the forefront of your mind here. As I read through a large portion of the opening part of Ephesians, ask yourself, is Ephesians Jesus-centered or is it is it moralistic? Is it Jesus-centered and, tell, and constantly grounding everything in Christ, or is it just telling us the things that we need to do? That's the question you need to keep in front of you. So with that, open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put the context on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, by going all the way back to the beginning of the book. Ephesians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, again, keep in mind, listen to who Paul is writing about. Is he writing about you or is he writing really about Christ? Watch this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, so that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above all above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's chapter one. (laughs) Wow, that seemed awfully Jesus-centered, didn't it? Isn't it strange that here... um, Jeremiah is quoting Ephesians 2.10, and it's as if he's taken an exacto knife to the book of Ephesians and made sure only to lift carefully lift out that portion where he can somehow weave it into what he's trying to teach, not what this text is teaching, because this text is all about Christ. We continue with chapter 2 now. And you were dead, you you folks in the Ephesian church, this would be all of you Christians out there as well. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked, um, f- following the co- uh, course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, you were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that chapter 2, verse 10 is a therefore, a, you know, kind of a, a result of the thing that precedes it that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. All of this Christ-centered... Ephesians is a Christ-centered text. And if Jeremiah was actually teaching this text, he would have no choice but to focus his sermon on Christ. But by ripping Ephesians 2.10 out of context using a dubious paraphrase... What he's done is taken Christ out of it and made this all about something about you. We continue. God created you uniquely. He has a purpose for you. And your uniqueness has a purpose in this world. As a matter of fact, you have been given certain abilities to do certain things really well. And until you discover those abilities and you align those things with God's purposes in the world, your life will continue to feel, you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. Ephesians is all about what Christ has done. Weird. See, that's the category. Moralism, 
versus, well, Christ-centered preaching. This isn't Christ-centered preaching. This is really moralism. And the reason why it's difficult to spot is because it's a different kind of moralism. And what I mean by that is this, is that the moralism that I grew up with, can't smoke, can't chew, can't go with girls who do. It's all about, you know, kind of like blue laws kind of thing. You know, you can't, you get what I'm saying. Okay, well, the list has changed, and the purpose-driven thing, it's still moralism, but they're not emphasizing you know, you know, some kind of sinless sin management system. Instead, no, no, just just get busy finding your purpose. That's still a thing you got to do. It's still moralistic, but it's not Christ-centered by any stretch of the imagination. If you were truly preaching a Christ-centered sermon, well, he'd be telling us all about Christ and what Christ has done for us, but he's not doing that. Watch what he does with these passages. Dissatisfied. It'll feel insignificant and unfulfilling because you weren't made simply to go through the motions. God actually created you and gave you abilities for a specific purpose, to be used for his kingdom in this world, to make a difference in this world. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit gives them. There are different ways of serving, but the same Lord is served. There are different abilities to perform service, but the same God gives ability to all for their particular service. God gives us abilities to be used in his service. He doesn't just want you to fill space in this world. He made you exactly who you are so he could use exactly who he created you to be to make a difference in this world. And we look at scriptures and God loves to create. He's a creative God. The very beginning of the Bible. Now, just because he's describing the fact that God creates doesn't mean he's actually teaching the biblical text here. He's not opens up to a God who's creating the universe, and God loves diversity. Just look down your row right now. Diversity, right? Everyone different. God created everyone different, everyone unique. He's creative, and he loves variety. There are no two people who are exactly alike. See, God could have made all of us out of one mold, right? Everyone the exact same height as me, everyone rugged. Telling us what God could or couldn't do is not the same as actually preaching a biblical text. Ruggedly handsome, but he didn't do that. How incredibly inefficient of God, right? Wouldn't it have been easier to just make everyone the same? But God is creative. Did you know that there are over 300,000 different species of beetles in the world? So now you're exegeting how many beetles are in the world? You're supposed to be teaching the biblical text. Can you say, uh, God, creative overkill? You know, like, what was he thinking? Is he, like, making beetles? He's like, they're going to love these. Oh. I don't know, but God is creative. He loves variety. We're all different. Some of you uh, were just made to play basketball, while others of you could jump off of a trampoline and you would never hit the rim. But those of you who are tall would look pretty stupid riding a horse as a jockey. Right? God made all of us unique. A lot of people think Lance Armstrong is an amazing athlete. I personally think he would be... You know, he'd do pretty poorly at sumo wrestling because it's not what he's made for. He was created to do one thing, not another. Have you ever watched uh, a marathon? How many of you have ever watched the Boston Marathon? Some of you have. No one from First Service had. And uh, that's because they have a life. Oh, (laughs) this is so exciting. All these people running for hours and hours. Let's tune in. Um... If you watch the end of a race like that, what you discover 
is that you find like 10, 20, 30 people who cross the finish line first. They're all built the exact same way, right? Because some people are designed to be runners. Some of us are not. That's just how it is. Some of us are just, you know, we're doomed to just be bodybuilders. And that's all it is. We're stuck in that mold. So everyone's different. Everyone's different. But as we explore this topic today, what I want you to understand is God created you uniquely for a purpose. And God wants to use the abilities that he's given you for his purpose in the world. And until you align that around God's purposes, align the way God's created Until you align, until you t- see the law, 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 law. This isn't gospel. This is all law. The thing you got to do. This is a form of moralism. If he were preaching the biblical texts that he's, you know, the in context that he's ripping these verses from, he'd have no choice but to tell us about Christ. But he's not interested in doing that. He thinks he has it all figured out without actually reading, quoting, or exegeting any passages in context. This isn't theology. This is man-made deception. Created you around the reasons God created you then your life is going to be insignificant. You're going to feel like you're going through the motions and wasting your life. And so I want to give you some really practical things that you can even begin to do this week. But before we get into that, the real practical side of things, I want us to acknowledge a couple of things about our abilities. First is this. Number one, every ability I have is God-given. I think that we're sometimes tempted. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We wouldn't even be breathing if it weren't for the fact that God created us. What does this have to do with Christianity and what Christ has done? To think of our abilities or our work life as an unspiritual topic. And we said this during week one. Hey, don't commute between your spiritual life and your work life. Your spiritual life envelops and overlaps every other arena of your life. And I think that talking about our work life and our abilities is a profoundly spiritual topic. Because it is God who gave us those abilities and opportunities. I think... You're not supposed to think. You're supposed to, at this point, be actually preaching a biblical text and using your brain in order to help exegete the text in context. Tell us about Jesus. You receive them from God, and they're an important part of your purpose in the world. That's why I can't stand when we like imply to kids that uh, you know you can do anything you put your mind to. Right? We tell that kids that all the time. Hey, just do your best. You can you can become anything you put your mind to. No, you can't. You're terrible at some things. There are some things you will never be good at. And I don't want to tell my kids that and sell them some bag of goods that isn't true. I asked Leighton a couple days ago, my four-year-old son, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's like, "Uh, I want to be a firefighter. And I was like, oh, right on. That's cool. And he's like, um, he goes, do you think I could be a firefighter when I grow up? I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, what if I was a firefighter while I was a kid? I said, ah, I don't know, buddy. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but you can work at it. He goes, well, and I want to be a comedian. And I said, do you even know what a comedian is? He goes, duh, make people laugh. And I was like, okay, so you know what that is? And he goes, and when I grow up and I'm bigger than everyone else in the world, I'm going to be a ninja. (laughs) And I was like, so you're going to be a firefighter, comedian, ninja. He goes, giant ninja. <laughs> and I was like, okay, a giant ninja. 
Now, what am I supposed to say to that as his dad? You can do it, buddy. Right? You be the best firefighter, comedian, giant ninja the world has ever seen. No, you can't be a ninja. That's stupid. Right? (laughs) If you knew my son and how big his head is, he could never achieve ninja balance being that top heavy. (laughs) It's impossible. Plus, I don't think ninjas get dental. So, like, no, stupid. You can't be a ninja. See, the Bible says this in Romans 12. God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. Did you know that it is God? What translation is that? Romans 12. What what verse are you reading from? Hang on a second. I got to do a little research. Okay, here it is. He's quoting Romans chapter 12, verse 6 from the New Living Translation, which says God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well with no context. Okay, so let me help him out here. We're going to add a little bit of context, and I'm going to read from a good translation. I don't particularly think the New Living is all that good. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV, and just watch what happens when I put it in context. Here's what Paul says, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or you can say in the light of God's mercy, because here at Romans 12, you know, after Paul has gone on and on and on about being saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law and p- pointing us to Christ and what he has done for us and that we that salvation is completely God's doing, right? Therefore, so the therefore there is in therefore in light of the gospel, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the and by testing. You may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For by for by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving the one who teaches in his teaching and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, yeah, I mean, by quoting God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well, you're kind of missing the context here, and he's talking in light of spiritual gifts, and spiritual gifts are given specifically for to be used in the body of Christ for the building up of the body of Christ. So again, another passage out of context. So here's the question. Moralism or Christ-centered preaching? Well, he hasn't preached Christ, so this really is all moralism, is it not? We continue. Who gives the gift to a carpenter to do carpentry? It's God who gives the mechanic the ability to understand machinery. God gives that ability. God gives the interior designer the ability to design. God gives the computer programmer the ability to understand speaking code and uh, ignoring girls. God gives them those abilities. God gives all of us different abilities, and they're all important. 
God gives the gift of carpentry just like God gives the gift to preach. And both are just as spiritual because both are God-given. So God gives us our abilities. Secondly, every ability can be used to honor God. How do I, how can what I do during the week bring honor to God? Well, if you're in business, every time that you act morally and ethically in your business, you honor God. Every time that you provide a legitimate service that people need, it honors God. When you use your ability to create something. You know, what's interesting is, is that if he would keep the doctrine of vocation in light of the gospel, he would have a legit teaching. But he's ripping verses out of context here. And even our vocation must be viewed in light of the cross and the gospel. Something, it's, uh, we continue. You're reflecting the creative heart of your heavenly father. It honors God. Folks, that's all worship really is. It's honoring God with the decisions that we make every single day. And sometimes what happens is that churches tend to, uh, you know, it's not intentional, but they label the musical portion of our service as worship. And so what ends up happening is our worship becomes pigeonholed to 15 or 20 minutes on a Sunday morning once a week. That's not what worship is all about. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do. Now, I spent time in Bible college and we learned like the Greek meanings of words. And that word whatever, when you interpret it actually into the English language, it means whatever. which is pretty all-encompassing. And uh, so there's glad I went to school so I could share that with you. Worship is all about your lifestyle and how you reflect God's character and God's agenda during the week. And then what happens is we come in here on Sundays and together we celebrate through music and we engage our emotions through music to honor God and to celebrate how we've reflected his character all week long. Frankly, if you live your life however you want to, unsurrendered to God and his ways, but then you show up and you sing some songs, you're really wasting your breath. Because worship, this is, this is an extension and a, a celebration of how we've already been worshiping God all week. With the decisions that we make, with how we treat people, with every word spoken, with every decision made. So you can repair a car to the honor of God. You can uh, manage financial books to the honor of God. You can... Uh, cook a meal to the honor of God. You can manage an office to the honor of God. You can even catch a football as a professional athlete. To- now, all of this is true. What he's saying is not technically wrong here. The issue is, is that this isn't done exegetically. That's one problem. And all of this is done without the cross in mind, which is a dangerous place to go. Okay. For instance, the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, marital fidelity is a good thing. It is a true, absolutely right, salutary, wonderful thing to be preaching, teaching, confessing. But, if that is done in light, it, without the cross, then it becomes pure moralism and the expectation and oftentimes the confusion is is that, hey, the way I please God is by being morally uh, chaste when it comes to you know marital fidelity. Well, here's the issue is, is that you sin in thought, word, and deed, and by not living up to that standard, the purpose of the law is to show you your sin, is to show you that you haven't actually done that. Even though that is God's will for you, you haven't done that. Therefore, you need a Savior. Notice there's no savior in this 
theology. It's just you discovering these principles to apply to your life, you know, to go from good to great, you know, something like that. But this is, uh, it's Christless, it's crossless, and it's ultimately moralistic. To the honor of God, unless you're a Chicago bear, in which case, no. Anything you do brings honor to God if you do it with that mindset. Number three, every ability points to God's plan for my life. When God gives me the ability to do something well, he wants me to do it. He gives me an ability so that I can understand his will for my life. The Bible says this in Philippians 2. God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. So first, God gives you a desire to do something, and then God gives you the ability to do it. What verse are you reading? Ah! Okay, uh, okay, here it is, here it is. It's uh, Philippians 2.13, New Living Translation again. There's the culprit. Again, context, context, context. Here it is out of context. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Yeah, bad translation, by the way. Just appalling. Context. Let's put this in context. Hold on. Let me pull this up in a good translation from the ESV. That's This will help. Um, let's see here. Yeah, let's, let's start at verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being of, in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God gave, <laughs> therefore, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if. <sighs> If Jeremiah was just preaching through Philippians 2 here, this would be a Christ-centered sermon. But he's ripped a sentence out of context from the middle of this passage that's all about Christ. Okay, so here's the therefore. So in, in therefore, in light of all of these things about Christ, right, that you know, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, he's humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross, right? It's all about Jesus. Therefore, in light of all of that, right? My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what this text says, Okay. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pleasure. So do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, you know, see it's what he's doing to the, you know, it, this is not a sermon. This is just a litany of out of context sentences and thoughts purposely cut in such a way that Jesus is left out of them. And it's all about the thing you got to do. We continue. 
That's incredibly important to understand. And if, if you're good at certain things, it's because God wanted you to be good at those things. He created you that way. And a, a good indication at God's will for your life is to look at the abilities, the natural abilities that he's given you. Your calling and your abilities will always match. It doesn't mean it'll always be easy, but God is not going to ask you to live out your life in an area where he hasn't also given you the ability to do it. So if God says, this is what the direction I want your life to go. Do you have a verse that says that? I don't even know what you're talking about. Go, he's going to give you the ability to do that. And so oftentimes our abilities are a good indication of God's plan for our life. Until you understand that your calling and your abilities match, then life can seem frustrating. You're going to feel like you're going through the motions, spinning your tires. There are some things that you're simply not good at and you never will be. Forget about those things. Focus on your strengths and forget the rest. I'm not talking about your character. Always get better at your character, but I am talking about your abilities. Your abilities. Sometimes we buy into this notion, there's kind of this buzzword that, hey, we should be well-rounded, that we should be balanced, that life is about, you know, improve the areas where you're weak so that you can become a well-rounded individual. And I got to be honest with you, I don't find that teaching anywhere in the scriptures. It's, well, you haven't really rightly handled the biblical text in this sermon, so it's kind of weird for you to talk this way. It sounds noble. It's kind of buzzworthy. But Scripture says, hey, discover who God created you to be and work really hard at that and be the best you that God created you to be. God doesn't want you to become well. So this, <laughs> be all that you can be. You know, it's, this is basically the, um, the Army commercial from a few years back. Good night. What have you done with Jesus? Why aren't you telling us about this is just pure purpose-driven moralism? Rounded in that sense, God wants you to become way you ear. Yeah, you got a passage that says it in context. You've been ripping the Bible to shreds. You haven't actually taught us sound biblical doctrine. Not a word, but you understand the concept. Number four, every ability must be used or we will lose them. We've got to use the abilities that God's given us or over time we lose them. When God gives you something and you manage it well, then God will trust you with more. If you take that ability that God's given you and you don't use it, then that ability uh, becomes dormant and it begins to atrophy and life will feel insignificant and unfulfilling. Let's see, just a un- Can you exegete a biblical passage and show this to me in context with everything you just said? bet you can't universal principle if you don't use something then you lose it think about your muscles right if you don't use them then they atrophy if you if you're not so he's basing this upon some so-called universal principle Mm -hmm. not straining your muscles and exercising and working on them then what happens you over time you get weaker that's just a natural principle of uh the world and so he's doing philosophy not biblical exegesis that's important to note it's the same thing is true. I mean, you're not going to get really buff sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and watching TV. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't happen. You're just not going to get there. First Timothy 4 says this, Physical exercise has some value, but spiritual exercise is much more important, for it promises a reward in both this life and the next. See, look... Our spiritual life is not that different from our physical life in terms of how we use it and how we uh, choose to deploy and exercise those muscles. And so when it comes to your physical life, he's saying, yeah, there's, you know, physical exercise, definitely there's some fruit there and makes a difference, but spiritual exercise, even more so. 
So what are you, what are you doing to use the, the spiritual abilities, the natural abilities, the gifts, the talents that God has given you, the things that you're passionate about to make a difference in this world? If you're talented in some area, you have some ability, you have a passion, and you're only using it for one reason and one reason only, to draw a paycheck, then you're missing out on one of the main reasons that God gave you that ability in the first place. What are you, what are you doing to use it in service of other people? God created you to make a difference in the world. So I want to get really practical over the next few minutes that we have together and give you five really simple things. And you don't have to do all five, but maybe you'll latch in on one. You say, this is something I need to focus on uh, this week. And so um, how not to, how to not waste your life. Uh, check this out. Number one, examine what I enjoy doing. I think that uh, there's some really practical questions that we can ask ourselves. And first we've got to examine, what do I enjoy? So ask yourself these questions. Number one, what fascinates me? Right? What are you drawn to? What gets your attention? What pulls you in? What do you do uh, that, is, that you're just passionate about? Uh, defending the church against Bible twisters like you. See, when you're doing something that you're passionate about, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You don't get tired of doing it. And sometimes people will ask me, well, do you ever get tired of being a pastor? No. I get tired being a pastor. Uh, I get tired and, you know, just like anybody else. But I never get, I never feel like I just don't want to do this anymore. And the reason is this. I've discovered what it is that God created me to do. And before that, I was just wandering around. I didn't really understand how God had created me and wired me until I discovered this is what God created me to do. So what fascinates you? What inspires you? Ask yourself this question. What do I really love to do? What inspires you? What energizes you? Ask yourself this. I feel really good when... What, what is it that makes you feel good? What is it that makes you feel significant and fulfilled? And then ask yourself this question. Finish this phrase. I was the most successful at... What was it throughout your life that whenever you did, it brought you the most success and it brought you joy and fulfillment? There's a good chance that God has given you that ability and created you to do that and to use those abilities to make a difference in the world. So first, examine what you enjoy doing. The Bible says this in Galatians 6. You should each judge your own conduct. If it is good, then you can be proud of what you yourself have done without having to compare it with what someone else has done. As if somehow Galatians is all about living a purpose-driven life. It's not. It's about properly understanding the law and the Gospels so that you don't fall for a false gospel that's law-based. Good night. It's like he's turned the Bible into some kind of handbook for living or something. You're, you're gutting all of the Christology and all of the passages about what Christ has done. This is purpose-driven moralism. Comparison is the thief of joy in your life. When you're passionate about what you're doing, you don't have to worry about what other people think because you've uh, connected with God's purpose for your life. So assess, what do I enjoy doing? Examine what you enjoy doing. Have you connected what you enjoy doing with, uh, with God's purpose in the world? Or do you basically view your job as kind of a prison between weekends? If that's the case, man, don't waste your life doing something that you hate. Start to examine, what do I love to do? Start there. And then uh, number two, assess my abilities. Try to, once you figure out what you enjoy, then, then ask yourself this question, what am I good at? Can you show me in the Bible where this list appears and these points appear? Can you show me where the apostles taught this in context? Show me where Jesus taught this in context. 
Yeah, what is it that God has given me the ability to do well? Most people have too low of a view of themselves. Some people have a really high estimate of themselves, right? Just watch American Idol tryouts. And uh, some people think they're pretty, pretty sweet. Romans 12 says this, be honest in your estimate of yourselves. Be honest as you estimate. Again, notice all of these, all of these imperatives. Be honest. Do this. Do this. Da, 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 da. Not a single indicative as far as what Christ has done for us. And yet in, the, in each of these books that he's quoting from, from the, from the New Testament, the, the imperatives are always in light of the indicatives. But we're getting no indicatives as far as what Jesus has done. This is pure, purpose-driven moralism. Yourselves, we all know that you know what we're not good at. But have you ever taken the time to think about what am I really good at? What is the natural abilities that God's given me? And the Bible says God's given everyone natural abilities to use for service for others and to advance His kingdom in the world. So, what is it that I'm good at? I know what I'm not good at. I am not good at mechanics. I am not good at building stuff. I am not good at hanging towel racks, uh, and I'm not good at anything that has to do with mechanics, building stuff, or hanging towel racks. I'm not good at baseball. I am horrible at baseball. I know this based on the fact that no one in the last five years has ever asked me to join their softball team. I am a horrible baseball player. The last time I was on a softball team, I was 17, and um, I don't think I got on base once all season. To be fair, slow-pitch softball is pretty tough. The arc on the ball, it's not normal. Who can hit that? So whatever, I don't think it's me. There are some things that I'm never going to be good at, and I know that. But uh, I did know that, okay, I'm good with people. I love God. And so it seemed like a natural fit that I wanted to uh, be a pastor. But you're not any good at rightly handling God's words, so you're already disqualified from being a pastor. A major part of the pastor's job is to rightly teach God's word. You're not doing this. You are a master Bible twister, which shows you really don't know what to do with God's word, which means you should not be teaching it to people, which means you shouldn't be a pastor. And so I started off working at a church, and I was on staff at a church, and I absolutely hated it. It was horrible. And what I didn't realize is that God had, God had created me to do something specific. God had, God had wired me and given me abilities. And while I could use that in a church setting, uh, I started to realize God also made me good at strategy. And so I would look at an organization that I was a part of and say, hey, why, why don't we realign this and realign that and so that our organization can move forward? And unfortunately, I became the guy on staff at every church that I worked at that said what everybody thought but was afraid to say which was great for my boss. He loved it. All the feedback, all the time. Fantastic for him. And until eventually I came to a point of just saying, I had a sit-down talk with my boss, who, you know, our, the pastor of our church, and said, look, he just said, you know, I think God's really created you to do something, something else. So I just, yeah. So you're fired. You're fired. He said, uh, and, and this is what I love, and I got to give you know mad props to this guy. He said, "Look, I really know that that, that God's wired you differently than this, and and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some time to figure out what that is because your future is not with this church. So I'm gonna give you some time to figure out what that is, and when you figure that out, come and let me know." And it was that year that we decided that we're gonna start a church because uh, as as I started to realize who God created me to be, I realized why why am I always jumping to the front trying to lead the line. 
Well, that was the gift of leadership that God had put inside of me. But until I discovered that, and until I assessed how God had created me and the abilities God had given me, I was frustrated. I was continually frustrated and felt like I was stuck in a rut. Have you ever sat down and just really done an assessment of what you're good at? Have you thought about what are the natural abilities that God has given me? And have you asked yourself, where am I using those to make a difference in the world? So you got to assess your abilities. Number three, develop my abilities. So find out what you enjoy. Find out where God's created you to be good. And then work at developing those abilities. This is a spiritual principle. God made an investment in your life, and he expects a return on that investment. If you're a builder, be the best builder you can be. If you're a mechanic, be the best mechanic that you can be. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher that you know how to be. If you're an artist, be the best artist you can be. If you're in sales, do it to the best of your ability. If you're a doctor, if you are a writer, if you are whatever it is, do the best that you know how to do. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Notice, verses out of, this turns the Bible basically into a bunch of fortune cookie sayings. Apparently he's been to the Rick Warren school of Bible butchering. Good night. Now, notice it doesn't say dedication will bring success. There are a lot of people who are dedicated to things that they're not very good at. The fact is, you need skill as well. And so we have to work at taking those abilities that God's given us and developing those skills. Uh, I have the, uh, God's given me the ability to speak to large crowds of people that I can't see, which is all of you. And the other day we were riding home and um, uh, from school, I had both girls in the car, and my six-year-old says, Dad, don't you get nervous talking to uh, all those people on Sunday morning? And then my uh, nine-year-old, before I could even answer, she goes, Dad never gets nervous about anything. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, I don't really get nervous. First of all, I can't see anybody on Sunday morning. I think, you know... They're out there somewhere. Uh, But secondly, the larger the group of people for me, the more fun it is. And uh, that's just how God's kind of wired me. And so I I love that. But uh, it's a God-given ability. But that doesn't mean that I'm not confident. Could you please stop talking about yourself and tell me about Jesus? Serious. It's like knowing about your life isn't going to help me at all. I need to know about what Jesus has done for me. Constantly working at getting better. Whatever abilities you've been given, don't just... Don't just coast on your abilities, develop them, work at them, continue to improve them. God's made an investment in giving you those abilities, and he wants to see a return on that investment. Proverbs 19 says this, do yourself a favor and learn all you can. Then remember what you learn and you will prosper. That's great wisdom. Number four, explore my options. Some of you are working in a job that you absolutely hate and your life is miserable. And I understand that. I have worked some miserable jobs in my life. But you're stuck living in a certain income bracket to pay for your life, but your life is miserable because you're not doing anything that you love and that you're passionate about, and you're caught in this vicious cycle. And I'm not saying quit your job tomorrow, okay? So hear me out on this. What I'm saying is, while you're working, why not begin to explore your options? If you're going to be doing a job for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years, Wouldn't you want it to be something that you enjoy, that you're passionate about, and that you're good at? Couldn't you get this advice from your parents? Couldn't you get this advice from a career guidance counselor? 
why on earth would I want to spend Sunday morning, the time when the job of the pastor is to preach the word, listening to this? That's how God created you. And when you do what you're passionate about and what you love, you will enjoy it. And life will become significant regardless of your income. Your life will have meaning and purpose. And if your job fits your passion and your heart, you don't have to be motivated or challenged or supervised. You just do it because you love to do it. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I delight in all my work. Are you able to say that, that you take delight in your work? If not, that, that is possibly a spiritual issue. And possibly one of the most spiritual things you can do is begin to explore your options for a new career. Now, again, let me be clear about this. I'm not saying show up tomorrow and quit your job. Okay, I don't want to be just like getting calls from your parents because you moved into their basement to find yourself, okay? But the world does not owe you a job to do what you love. So sometimes you just got to work and you got to pay the bills. And I, I get that. But don't allow yourself to get stuck doing something that you hate because you're driven by whatever income bracket you have to stay in. Explore your options. It may not even be the, that the job is the issue for you. It may be something else, but you need to find a hobby or a ministry opportunity that's an outlet for what you're passionate about. If you are stuck with that job and you know this is the best job to provide for your family, until you are able to find something new that is significant for you, then continue to work your job. But then find another outlet, find another opportunity, a ministry opportunity, a hobby, a passion that allows you to deploy the gifts and the abilities that God's given you to make a difference in the world. God doesn't want your life to be a drag. He wants your life to be filled with joy. Jesus said he wants you to experience life to the fullest. And part, Yeah, John 10.10, way out of context here. I would point to the sufferings of many of the people in the Old Testament and the saints and the apostles as basically saying, what are you talking about? Part of that is connecting your unique passion that he has created in you and doing something that is significant. Sometimes we say things, I hear people say, well, someday I'm going to quit my job and do something I love. So you're going to waste your life and then do something you love to do right before you kick it. That's what I'm hearing. So don't do that. Invest your life now. When you're doing something you love, you're motivated and enthusiastic about it. People often succeed at things that they love doing. People don't usually succeed at things that they hate doing. Again, this doesn't give you license to quit your job. You know, don't go in tomorrow and, oh, yes, well, my pastor at my church said that this is what I should do. So... Uh, if you don't have a heart for what you're doing, you're not going to do it enthusiastically over the long haul. I had someone early on when we first started the church, I think it was uh, someone's mom that came to visit. And, um, and after service, she came up to me and she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. And I was like, thanks. And she said, I'm going to pray that you find your true calling. Because I think there's just too much humor in your message. And it's really much better suited for a comedy club than a church. And I was like, you should have listened to her. She was giving you sage advice there. You really think I got a shot in comedy? (laughs) Thank you. So nice. Uh, (laughs) The fact is, when you enjoy what you're doing, uh, it honors God. When you're passionate about it, you will enjoy it and you'll bring honor to God. But you have to explore your options to get to that point. For some of you, your job isn't even the main issue. It's just that you haven't found any other arena of life where you can deploy the gifts and abilities that God's given you. So don't waste your life. Find, find something that you're passionate about, that you're good at, that you can begin to use those things uh, to make a difference in the world. 
Don't waste your life. Begin to expose yourself to all different types of serving opportunities and discover what you're passionate about. Proverbs 23 says this, get the truth and don't ever sell it. Get around people that are doing what you're passionate about. Iron sharpens iron. Let them rub off on you. It's kind of like a campfire. I like fire because I'm a guy. And um, guys like fire. It's, it's just a phase that lasts like 70 years. And uh, before there was TV, there was fire. Um, before there was a remote to hold on the couch, there were sticks to put in the fire. This is what guys do. And uh, if you're ever camping, you'll notice guys always have a stick in their hand and they're poking at the fire. <laughs> So what happens is you'll notice that at first the stick is in the fire, but after a while, the fire is in the stick. You can pull the stick out and the fire is in the stick. And what happens is that the flames and the sparks eventually ignite the stick itself. When you get around people who are passionate about what you're passionate about, it ignites a fire inside of you. And so that's why we do growth groups, so you can meet people. That's why we have serving teams. That's why we do those things, so that you can get around people who are passionate about some of the things that you're passionate about. So make that a priority. Number five, use my abilities to serve others. If God's given you the gift of planning, uh, you can either plan a rescue or a robbery. God's given you the ability uh, of influence. You can use that to manipulate people or minister to people. You can use your gifts uh, selfishly or unselfishly. There are examples throughout scripture and our own culture where people use the abilities God gave them strictly for themselves. And it's a mistake. The Bible says in Romans 12, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service. No, actually it says in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel. But see, you've taken an exacto knife to the Bible and these biblical books that you've quoted from and literally cut Jesus and the gospel out of it. This is a form of of moralism. It's purpose-driven moralism. In 1 Peter 4, it says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. We should use our abilities to serve others, to help each other. Let me ask you something. Is that how you view them? Is that how you view your abilities and your talents and the gifts God given you? Are you using them to give away in service to others? Because that is where you find the most significance, the most meaning, and the most purpose in life. And this is all you-centered, not Christ-centered, not even close to Christ. You can't even call this a Christ-centered sermon. Jesus hasn't even made a cameo appearance. God determined where you would be born and what opportunities you would have. And he's, he's created you the way that he's created you. He's put you where he's put you. And he expects you to deploy your gifts and your talents and your abilities for his service. And if you're a father, Am I saved if I do that? I mean, am I pleasing God to the point where I can be saved? I mean, do I need Jesus for this? Follower of Jesus, the Bible says that God expects you to use your abilities within his family called the church to begin to deploy those abilities in God's church. And every single week, people from Westbridge connect what they are passionate about with what they are naturally good at. And they take those things and they connect them with God's purpose in the world and they serve other people. And every connect them with God's purpose in the world. What is that? Every week that happens right here at Westridge, and it's it adds significance and fulfillment to their life because that is how God designed it. That's God's design. God doesn't want your life to be a waste. He wants you to discover what you're good at and what you love to do. He wants you to develop that and then deploy it for service for other people. And what you'll discover is if you'll do that, you will never waste your life. There you go. So if you do that, you'll never waste your life.
Huh. And if you don't do that, you'll waste your life. Do you go to hell if you don't waste – if you do waste your life? And do you, are you free from hell if you don't – I mean, this seriously. You know, I told you at the beginning of the sermon. By the way, it's over. I told you at the beginning. Categories are moralism or Christ-centered preaching. Was that Christ-centered? Not even close. Just a complete litany of you need to do this. 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 You need nothing about what Christ has done for you. Absolutely nothing. Now, does that is that to say that the Bible doesn't teach us that there's things that we ought to do? Does that mean that everything he said was wrong? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is is that the cro- the cross and Jesus were completely taken out of the equation, and true Christian sanctification never does that. In fact, it's impossible for you to quote experience. I even hate to use the word true Christian sanctification without Christ. Everything hinges, focuses on, and hangs on the cross. And that was completely missing from this sermon. So um, what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>